Hello, and thank you for tuning into the show. A quick caveat before you dive in. This was recorded pre-COVID-19. The views, the ideas, the conversation that was shared, the perspectives were all done in a pre-pandemic world. So please listen to the show as there's some fantastic information and some great takeaways. Just know that it was recorded before the pandemic that has ultimately changed all of our lives. Thank you for listening. Keep learning, keep curious, and keep supporting our community. Hello and welcome to They Just Get It. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm, and I'm incredibly enthusiastic today about my upcoming guest. His name is Peter McCoppin, and I've got, I've got to read you guys his, his what, who is Peter McCoppin off his website, because it's just too much for me to rhyme off. Executive coach, keynote speaker, international orchestral conductor, national host broadcaster. Peter brings a level of heart, a level of caring, a level of deep emotional insight to a conversation around his journey from growing up to becoming a conductor, living his dream, becoming a broadcaster on the CBC, to stumbling into his role as a leadership and cultural change agent for organizations. Peter will leave you inspired. He'll leave you thinking about your life differently. And more importantly, thinking about the people around you and the connections that you can make. Join me for a very heartfelt and one of my favorite episodes so far, and there's been amazing ones, with Mr. Peter McCoppin on They Just Get It. We've got some younger, more of the disruptors that you know haven't maybe stepped on all the landmines, and we've got a group of older, more seasoned business leaders that, again, are the kind of people that are like, yeah, I've been doing this for 40 years, but that doesn't mean I, I know that I don't know. So what can I learn? And yeah, the whole yeah. point of collisions is you know kind of banging together different, different corners of the, uh, of the ecosystem. I love it. So it's been a ton of fun and it's a little bit found this hidden skill, I guess, passion that I have that I had no idea that I was going to be good at doing this. <laughs> and I always say that because people keep telling me they like it. So I keep doing it. <laughs> and if no one listens, I would still find it a success because I get to have great conversations. Well, I think too, if you, if you demonstrate a contagious enthusiasm, it put, puts people at ease. And that, that, yeah, again, they're just showing up as a mirror to what you're offering. That's interesting because I've often found sometimes in my own journey, my enthusiasm is almost too much. I come off really big, really energized. But in this environment, something about the dynamic really works. And people have often said like, wow, I came in kind of nervous. And within 30 seconds, I was comfortable, forgot I was doing a podcast and just had a conversation. And to me, that's the nicest thing anyone could say because I created an environment of trust in my mind, is what, it, what it means. But yeah, yeah. I'm trying not to blow them out of the back of the chair with my enthusiasm. <laughs> Well, Which I, think, I have been accused of in the past. Well, I, think, I, I, think that, I think that enthusiasm, yes, it, it can be overwhelming. It depends what it, 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 what, where it's, what its source is. Okay. Um, so if, if, if a person, there are those people who would come from, a, a, I think, if, from a place of inadequacy, and they feel they have to overcompensate, and in such a case, then uh, they'll be overwhelming. However, if the person's coming then, that, so that's more like a, something on the periphery of the individual. Okay. But if, if a but person's it's coming al from, Almost a shell that you're putting out there. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's to prove yourself worthy and you, see, you overwhelm. <laughs> but if it's just coming from, if it's coming from a deep-seated place within the individual, that, mm, that's, that's, interesting. that's felt in a very, very different way it's a, by the recipient. One almost feels like a shtick where the other one maybe comes out as a little bit more authentic. Yeah. No, not to, and not to oversimplify, but... Yeah, and that, 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 it, that shows up as a as quiet authority, I think. Hmm. Yes, the people that, 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 that all of a sudden default into being in the lead just because of the error and the energy that they carry around them. It's very palpable. Hard to describe, but when you find it, when you feel it, it's there. 
Well, well, absolutely. And it's not a matter of volume. It's a matter of quality. And we can think of some current political leaders, yes, who demonstrate what appears to be a lot of confidence in, in casting aspersion against other people, diminishing other people and so forth, as if that person were coming somehow from the mountain. And they should actually show up with all their loudness. They show up as being very soft and quite, quite, quite fragile. So interesting. So, in your experience, obviously, we're, we're just we're just going to get into this because that's the way that's what a good conversation is all about. How, in your experience, well, let's talk. Let's, well, let's let's let the audience in a little bit on your experience. So, I'm talking with Peter McCoppin. Peter and I are just getting to know each other as you're now eavesdropping on our on our fan, uh, what is going to be and is already a fantastic conversation. So, Peter, let's let the audience know a little bit a bit of who you are and the journey you've been on, and then let's get into some of. The, 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 the interesting bits. Thank you. Well, I started off as a musician. I think that, in a way, I, I've, I've discovered myself through, through music in a rather odd way. And that was that, um, when I think I was in grade one, and we were doing what, the morning exercises. I'm dating myself. <laughs> on the PA system, now even more dated. Uh, <clears throat> and so, and the teacher came to me and said, Peter, we, we want you to sing a solo. Oh, Really? didn't even know I had a singing voice. And the piece that we sang was Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam. It's rather interesting that that was the piece we sang. Because somehow putting religion aside, uh, somehow in my, all, all of my life, I've, I've, how can I say, I love to awaken the light in people. Now that sounds pretty profound, and I don't mean to be pretentious with that at all. But rather, I, I see myself as a person who who thrives when he's the the wind under somebody else's wings. I just love mm. to to participate in other people's success or their awakening or when they find their own music inside them. And so my my identity was attached much to music and eventually I became a church organist and choir master and so forth and then thought to myself I'd really like to take this further. And uh I didn't really have the background to be a, an orchestral conductor. I mean most most people who succeed in that profession are very, very highly skilled at a very young age and probably have, have parents or a family environment that uh, nurtures them in their leadership skills. I didn't, I didn't really have that. Nevertheless, followed that dream, followed that passion, and eventually became a, a conductor. Conducted, in fact, the Calgary Philharmonic several times. And orchestra is on, on four continents. How old, when did you actually find your way to that aspect of you? what was sounding like the bulk of your career? I was in my mid-twenties. Okay. And it was... Is, is, I, that, is that young for a role like that? Yeah, but, but it doesn't mean that I was, I was proficient at that age. I was just, I, I was I doing that. it. I, I appreciate the distinction. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and it was a bumpy road as well, I would say, because... Yes, I, I studied for a couple of years. I had scholarship. I went. I was studying in Europe, in Vienna, and following some really world-class conductors in a mentoring kind of relationship. And uh, then I completed all of that. My fir first job was uh, to be head of the orchestral program at the Cleveland Institute of Music. A really a wonderful school, a very high standard. And so to say, the Farm Club of the Cleveland Orchestra, which is still one of the great orchestras of the world. And from I was there for three years, and then I thought, I really want to come back to Canada. And I auditioned for the Vancouver Symphony. 
And they t told me at that time that I was actually, they said, you're overqualified for this job. So the people who, so to say, failed at, for the audition of the Vancouver Symphony, they, I mean, Vancouver eventually invited me to guest conduct and things of that sort. Um, anyway, so the people who did not make it in Vancouver were invited to, to audition in, in Edmonton. And I was one of the people who auditioned. And I got this job as assistant conductor in Edmonton. Which lasted two years, and was and my contract was not renewed. We don't have to say any more. Okay, <laughs> that's it. You, did, you parted ways. Okay. <laughs> we parted ways, and so there was there's the first bump in the road. And what it was interesting because while when I got to Edmonton, um, I had I'd had this this dream for a long time, perhaps in, you know since since my early twenties. I thought I'd really like to be on the radio. I remember listening to a program on CBC National Radio. It was afternoon concert hosted by Ken Haslam and Jim Robertson. I said out loud, driving in my car, I'd love to be on the radio. Beware, beware of what you say. What you, what you, what you let the universe in on? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so um, while, I was, uh, while I was in Edmonton, uh, I, did a, I did a program on CKXM FM 100 uh, on a Sunday night. And... Uh, a person on the CBC heard me doing this show and they said, you know, we, we need a guest host for this national radio program, RSVP, for 13 weeks. And so I did that. And at the conclusion of my contract with the Edmonton Symphony, I, I could fall back on, on broadcasting. So I went to Ottawa and um, hosted mostly music, AM, FM, nationally, for a year. At, at following that period... A new producer came on, and and that new producer wanted a different host, and so I remember these these moments in our lives when we we make a a choice, and it's a dramatic choice. It might even be a painful choice, because I still wanted to be a conductor. Absolutely, that was that was what I dreamed of doing, and so I remember finishing up in Ottawa with mostly music. And coming back to Toronto, I was in my parents' basement when I got a call from the executive director of Arts National, the premier program on CBC National Radio. And he said, Peter, we're offering you to be host of Arts National. And I said to him, you know, if I take this on, I'm going to be labeled host broadcaster and my dream of conductor is, is gone. And so I returned to Edmonton. We had not been able to sell our house in Edmonton. At the, because of interest rates that were 16% or whatever they were at that time. And so I can remember even counting change to, to buy supper because it, but it, was a, it was a sacrifice. Nevertheless, sticking to it, sticking to it. And How old were you at this point? Late 20s, early 30s? I was early 30s, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> exactly. And just holding on to that dream. That was literally a left turn, right turn kind of. Moment. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and, and you, you know. knew it at the time though, because sometimes you look back and see it. But you were very much like, if I go down this road, there's always a cost of opportunity, right? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So, in in, in any event, um, we we stayed in Edmonton, and it was it was difficult. I did some broadcasting there on local radio and and some television and so forth, and then there was the opportunity to do two things in Vancouver almost concurrently. One was the CBC Talent Competition, and the other was uh, Expo 86. Okay. And so I got to conduct a concert for Expo 86 and also host the CBC Talent Competition. <clears throat> the feedback was pretty positive 
from, from the executive director of the orchestra, he said, oh, if you come here, if you move out to Vancouver, there are all kinds of things that, that we could offer to you. And the executive director of CBC Television for Western Canada said, if you move out here, no problem with broadcasting. So we moved to Vancouver, and what do you know? When we arrived, my wife and I, um, that both of those people had gone on to, on to different jobs. Uh, oh, no, no, that's, that's, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm in Vancouver. And a fabulous city, terrific orchestra, and so forth. And I get, I get to, to know the orchestra and, and its management quite well. And I don't do major things with the orchestra, but there are some pops concerts and children's concerts and sort of lighter fare. And we build a trust with each other. So in, it's very interesting to think that the, the Vancouver Symphony had the largest subscription audience in the world in 1980, 40,000 subscribers. And in 1988, they closed their doors and ran out of money. And it so happened, now talking about fate, it so happened that I was on the podium that night that it was declared to the audience that the Vancouver Symphony was finished. What a turnaround. And so the press. Yeah, I'm sure that's that, a story unto itself of what happened in that. Well, the, I'm sensing some mismanmanagement, perhaps. Well, there, but it was not the, to point fingers or name names. A number of things. Um, first of all, there was a civic strike that shut the orchestra out of its its hall for 18 months. They were playing in a shopping mall. Then they hired a music director who didn't have a chemistry with the audience. I mean, these things happen. Mm -hmm. And I think they they lost touch with this outdoor community. They became quite elitist and exclusive. You know, come okay. to us rather than our, our going to, our, the orchestra going to, to its supportive public. Anyway, so I happened to be on the podium that night. The, the press thought that I was the spokesperson for the orchestra. I was not. I had no official station with, at all with the Vancouver Symphony. And they, they said to me, well, well, what do you think of this? I hadn't planned to say anything. But I simply said, well, I think it's a golden opportunity to revisit, refine, and rebuild. The mayor of the city, Gordon Campbell, who eventually became the, the premier of the province, he read what I said in the National Globe and Mail, and he said, come to my office. I think there's, I'd like to talk to you about this. And he said, this is just intuitive, but I somehow feel that you could play a key role in rebuilding the community support and the corporate ownership, so to say, of this, of this orchestra. And so that's what happened. Um, so through this persistence, 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 eventually there was that reward. And <clears throat> I mean, the things that, that I'd never heard before, you know, it's talking about thriving on chaos, ready, fire, aim, whatever. One, <laughs> that, that was how we were. Pick, pick the colorful. <laughs> yeah, so, well, like, now, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, to, to really build that connection with the audience again, I said to the board, you know, we should do some spectacular outdoor concerts. You know, we're so elitist, we're so exclusive. This is a city where you can, you know, do downhill skiing and play golf and tennis and salmon fishing all in one day. It's just amazing. Let's go out to the public. Anyway, and we were going to do these amazing outdoor concerts. And the first one that I wanted to do was on top of Whistler Mountain. They said, this is insane. How are we going to get people to come here? And I said, well... Here's an outrageous idea. Why don't we fly a full-size grand piano by helicopter from Falls Creek, downtown Vancouver, over the water along the coast, and perch it on top of the mountain? And that'll be a way to capture the people's interest. And what do you know? 6,800 people came to the mountain and sat on bales of hay and listened to a classical concert. And after that, 
It has a real biblical kind of come. It has a real <laughs> biblical feel to it here. <laughs> yes, it's, it's quite biblical. And and the neat thing was that you know we did many concerts like that, and out of a bankruptcy year, we came out five hundred thousand uh, dollars in the black, and doubled our, our our subscription base, and there we are. And you found yourself through a, a comment mm-hmm. to be the leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Up to that point, had you, because leadership is an interesting concept. I know we're going to work our way there. And sometimes it's look, sometimes it's inherited, sometimes it just shows up. Clearly at that point, had, was in your role, had leadership been something you'd thought about tangibly, leadership, management, any of those different ways you can call it? No, not at all. Uh, I think about Tom, Tom Peters in his book, Thriving on Chaos, uh, you know, Ready, Fire, Aim. Mm-hmm. Somehow I just, here was a situation, I had to respond to it and I had to learn quickly to adapt to it. And I think that leadership is, it's, it's, a, it's just a matter of behavior. And I, I learned, I mean, I, obviously I made many, many mistakes. And that's the only way to learn as well, too. Fail well, fast, that. fail faster, fail better, fail smarter. Mm-hmm. And just hopefully fail different. <laughs> and, yes, exactly. <laughs> and I think that's the myth of leadership, that it's somehow this, like, oh, I've arrived and things are, I, I have all the answers. And it's, it can be very, it can be romanticized, I think, from the outside. Mm-hmm. Versus be. the reality of what you just described of like, oh my goodness, like I was in it. I thrust myself into it by accident. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 it, it's fortunate. I mean, with, with the board that we had, these were highly experienced people, and I learned a lot through and from them in that in that experience. But it was it, there was not much time for contemplation. I'd have to say, which sometimes can be an advantage. Or overthinking, uh, think overthinking. That's a that's a relevant term. We sometimes can think ourselves right out of a decision. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe I'm speaking very personally on that one. <laughs> well, I think ultimately, I think we have to listen to our heart intelligence. You know, what what does our gut tell us? And um, it's interesting. Just quite recently, I I gave a presentation um, in Victoria, and it was um, how. Adversity always invites opportunity. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I was saying to, the, to the, the audience that was assembled there that the people that we most admire are those who have walked through the fire, whose, whose resilience has been tested, and they somehow have found the courage, the, the tenacity, the belief just to forge on through all of that and to be transformed through the experience. And uh, I was thinking... Within that that presentation, I, I I talked about Nelson Mandela, and I said, just imagine if you were in your early 40s and you'd already spent half of your life in prison, and within that situation, you were, you experienced the worst of torment and humiliation and degradation, and you say, well, how how could you possibly survive that? And what was so fascinating in the case of Nelson Mandela was that that only tempered his belief. That only forged his determination. Back to the word. Forged exactly. is such a good word. Yeah, amazing. And so when he emerged from that and was acclaimed to the highest um, position in the land, he, he spoke words of Marianne Williamson. We've, we've heard these words before, and I was thinking about them a lot. When he said, our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we're powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. And I thought about that yet again and again. It's our light that frightens us. What is he talking about? And I thought to myself, there is within every one of us an innate wisdom, a deep-seated knowledge, 
a, a profound awareness of the person, the potential, potentially the person we may become, and, and the task that we may give ourselves to in a lifetime. And how few people really do that. So what, is, what, is, what, is, what do you think? What is that? It's so daunting. Because when you, do, when you do follow that, well, as Joseph Campbell would say, follow your bliss, you, you give it all. You put, you put yourself completely at risk. And in so doing, you stand out. And so if you, you, that means that you're going to yes, push yourself away from those people who care about you, who say, oh, don't do that. You could fail. You could lose it all. I mean, your life might be ruined. Uh, and then also you're standing in, in, in the light of uh, whatever, you're in full exposure, yes. where, where you're subject to criticism and, and to betrayal and all kinds of things like that. Incredibly vulnerable. Very vulnerable. And so it takes tremendous courage to really follow your heart. And I believe within all of us, there is, that, there is that deep wisdom, there's that profound knowledge if we just listen to it. And so, the, and, and there's probably going to be a tremendous amount of struggle. We don't talk about that with the people. We see the people, and so to say, in the final of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Yes, we do. But we don't see all the hard roads and the hard knocks that they had along the, the way. The 5 a.m. practices, the getting cut from the team that one time. The, you know, using that as, a, as you know, you hear a lot of talks from where they interview you, and they're like, oh, like, thank you, but you didn't see everything. My parents that took me to their, you know, we're picking the hockey analogy, you know, yeah. to the rink. But so many times in business, it's so easy to almost a little bit minimize their success to make us not maybe feel as bad mm-hmm. or maybe avoid some introspection. Those are my own views and it's part of even why I started this podcast was, you know, they just get it. Take the time to be curious enough to ask and you'll find out that it was, it was a journey and it wasn't easy and they worked hard to get there, wherever there is. Absolutely. And with each, each time that there was a, a crisis, um, the person was compelled to, to go more and more deeply into their resourcefulness that deeper resolve, the forged yeah. back to that. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the, that's the image I've got now in my mind. Absolutely, and and then and to and to move through their own fears, uh, and and to become strengthened to transform through the process. I think that's so so critical. And on your journey, was there a point where, because obviously this is it's a series of revelations to yourself as you become more aware of these things. Mm-hmm. Is, was there a point in your life that you noted or that was became like, a, back to the left or right, where you notice you started to then go, okay, I'm embracing this, I'm understanding it, and then started being that catalyst for people around you? Absolutely. So I, I told you how I thought that I was, I, I, I felt significant, I felt meaningful when I was in music. So I was, otherwise I, I had very low self-esteem, but when I was in music, somehow I felt that I was significant and I... I had That's an interesting comment about, but not, not when you weren't in that space, you didn't have it. Exactly. The, yeah, really interesting. Because yeah. it's also easy to think that when you see someone who's in that, that they're always in that. Hmm. I found it's easy to, oh, they, they're always that way. It's like, I said, someone said to me once, my wife goes, oh, you don't understand. You're always confident. I said, what? What do you mean I'm always confident? She goes, well, you're always confident. I said, oh, no, no. I act. I take the next step. But don't think right before that, I'm not crying on the inside about to, scared, scared out of my wits about what's about to happen. But that taking the step looks like you never had, you never lacked confidence in the first place. That was, it was just an interesting moment from years and years and years ago. Well, and, and typically when we, when we identify someone, we identify them in their strength. We identify them when they're in a flow state. Think about someone like Johnny Carson. So the most acclaimed talk show host of all time. He was a very, very shy person. He was extremely nervous. 
this, I mean, there have been a lot of reports yeah. of this. Mm-hmm. He'd be backstage. He'd almost have to be thrown on through the curtain. But as soon as the curtain opened, here's Johnny. He was a different person. And I think we've seen that. That's a good one. That's a great example. Yeah. And we've seen that with so many performers. When they're, when they're in their element, amazing. But take them out of the element... And, and it's almost like a different person. It said context defines behavior. And so when, we're, when we're, we're performing in a high, in a context where we've had great success, where we have natural and developed strengths and skills, uh, where we feel, um, we feel worthy, we show up. And people associate, that, well, that's, how that person, that's who that person is. Not necessarily. That's who that person is in that context, right. and we become we associate that person with that context. Take them out of that context; they're perhaps very, very different. And so that's it. Just unpacking that in itself is very tell. It, it, that's so interesting because we glamorize those moments, but then we also try to hold that person to that same standard all the time, which can be very almost unfair. Very. Un- if that's someone in your life or someone you're close to, a performer, it's, you see them in that segment of time, and then the relationship dissipates. But when it's someone you see regularly, that's an interesting roller coaster, as equal parts in the relationship. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so there was a I, I, yeah. You talked about a revelation. I was uh, concurrently the music director of, of two orchestras, one in Charlotte, North Carolina, and in Victoria here in Canada. So that was a regular commute. I was working also with orchestras in those days quite a bit in Japan and in China, somewhat in Australia. Anyway, but those those two orchestras. This is through your 30s and 40s, roughly, just to uh, I, let, yeah, let, let the been, audience stay, stay with our timeline? Yeah, I'd be in my 40s by that time. Okay. And so, yeah, by that time I'd conducted on four continents and, and so forth, and seemed to be realizing my dream. So in in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is the home of Bank of America, Royal and Sun Alliance, Duke Energy, and so forth, really a business hub. And I got to know a lot about, about leadership there. There was a man, Hugh McCall, who was the CEO of Bank of America, who had led that, or- that organization through 63 mergers and acquisitions over 20 years. Uh, un- unprecedented. Amazing. He was modest. He was open. I once asked him, I said, where do you get your best information? So we had by the time he had accomplished all of this, he had 180,000, we'll say teammates, employees. Yes. I said, where do you get your best information? He said, two sources, the tellers and the people in the street. And I thought, that's so interesting. Anyway, it was in the time that I was music director in the Charlotte Symphony, that one night after a, after a concert, a number of people got together, members of the board, and we went to... Have a, have a meal and a glass of wine and so forth. And one of these people was a senior in the Duke Energy Corporation. And as she sat down to the table, she would have been in her early 50s at the time, and she said, you know, I've just been offered a job, the job of my dreams, and I'm thinking of turning it down. And we looked at her, and no one, no one said, how could you be so foolish or anything of that sort, but we were mystified by that. She's a senior vice president in the ninth largest corporation in North America, a great brand, wonderful culture, and she turns down the job. And eventually she, we relaxed, and the, a person sitting at the table, I remember very well, David Furr, the lawyer for the Dallas Cowboys, he said, you know, this person's name was Sue. He said, Sue, you know, we're, we're concerned as your friends that here you are at the crest of your career and you turn down the job of your dreams. Why would you do that? She said, well, the job actually is to be director of investor relations. And... Uh, 
I've read the job description, she told us, 50% of which is speaking in public on behalf of the company. She said, I'm an analyst. I'm comfortable in a dark room with spreadsheets. But as far as getting out in public, oh my God, I'm terrified of public speaking. So she reached across the table. This is an interesting moment. Reached across the table. And she said, Peter, I've heard you introduce all the concerts from the concert stage to really familiarize the audience with the whole experience of composition and things of this sort. And I've heard you speak on public radio and you ever taught communication and public speaking? I said, no, I never have. Would you rise to the challenge? I said, I'm not too sure. And so this was on a Friday night. And over the weekend, I thought about this. And I thought, this has to be a method. It can't just be something that excites people. And so they really have to be grounded in a skill and, and a methodology. And so I worked on that. And on the following Monday, I called her. And I think I, I said, I have something here. It may suit you. I'm not sure. Anyway, the long and short of it is that she took this program, she accepted the job, three months later she was very successful, and then she came back to me and she said, now would you consider training a, the cross-section of our whole vice president tier? And I said, wow, that's... Anyway, I did that. And it was, it was so interesting, and I thought, you know, I've been conducting... Condu I did, didn't come to this full realization, but I've been conducting orchestras, but really what fascinates me is human behavior. And so, I, with over time, I eventually completed my, my tenure as music director of the Victoria Symphony and the Charlotte Symphony concurrently in 2001. And I thought, I want to build this forward. Time it's, for the next chapter. Time for the next chapter, yeah. And, it, and it's a transferable skill. And so... Uh, I approached a person in, in Victoria. He was the chair of the Variety Club, a well-known person, a lovely guy. And he said, well, I'll host this evening for you, and we'll get the YPO to sponsor it, et cetera, et cetera. 225 people came. It was in a hotel right, on the, right in the inner harbor. And two of those people were fairly senior. One was uh, the former lieutenant governor of the province, and one was the founder of Delta Hotels. And they both came to me and said, we'd like to offer you a testimonial for what we saw in two hours this, this evening. And then I went to this, this person who hosted the evening, and, and I said, well, where do I go from here? He said, I'm on the board of TELUS. I'll, I'll introduce you, but after that, it's up to you. Mm -hmm. So I did this audition. I never auditioned for that before. I did an audition. I do love you use the word audition. I think that's a very powerful word <laughs> for a <laughs> it, bunch of reasons. Yeah, it is. Exactly. It is an audition, and we should treat it that way. Well, exactly. And... Um, Anyway, and this person who, who listened to me, uh, she gave me her business card, and on it she just wrote, fabulous. And so from that came then a one-year contract, became two, became four, became six. And then it just evolved from there. So it started off as a communications course, and then eventually that led to team building. I've done now over 80 of those, where I facilitate a process whereby the team co-creates and defines its culture on a level playing field. Values, behaviors, and actions which they agree to hold each other accountable. People support what they create. If they have authorship, they have ownership. Yes, ownership. If you see your own fingerprints, it changes everything. <laughs> well put. Exactly. <laughs> exactly so. So, and, and then eventually move towards leadership. And, and, and even within, within the, uh, the process, if I have, I don't know how many hundreds, and no, I guess it's thousands of people now have have taken this course, and it's all Socratic. So I'm just in the moment, 
you know, they would have a booklet which would give them, so to say, the, the heading of, of what we were dealing with, leadership just being behavior. And then everything else that's on that page is in their own hand. And the whole program is co-created by them. And so the transcript of each of these courses would be distinctly different. It's their course. And again, it's conducting. I decided to be so I, I, responsive. I, I see What's the in the moment? Yeah, yeah. And not taking any notes. I, I, from years of, of, con, of learning music, my memory is very visual. So if I need a quotation, I can, I can you, see it. You see it. And I just pull it out of the air and so forth. And I don't say that with any pretense. It's just, it's a skill. Well, that's the skill that works for you. Yeah, exactly. Simply put. And, and I just love this. And, and going more and more deeply into human behavior. And, and, and I found that, yes, it was, it was, it is music in a way, uh, that, but it's, it's, the, it's the music that happens between people in a very spontaneous way that I think is just fantastic. It sounds. It, I, I'm. I'm about to find out when your next course is, so I can come take it. So that's. We'll. We'll, we'll talk about that after. So how do you. How do you approach people? You know, when you or individuals that going back to the Nelson Mandela example and that are scared to step into our light, because you can teach people a framework and let them kind of work through it, but then sometimes when the real world shows up, that fear takes over. That fear of being vulnerable. I guess just getting an understanding of you know some people. People that I've met are like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great, but that won't that won't work for me. Like, I just, I'm just, that's not me, or I can't, I, I, I can't get out of my own way. That's my own words. I guess when you're working with individuals on a, in a group setting, but even getting down to one on one, what is it? What tools do you use to help people move through that? Well, the first thing they have to challenge their own story, and recognize it is just a story. It's a story we tell. And so, things. for example, as a simple diagram, I think we. 89% of what we learn is through the eye. 10% through the ear, 1% through all the other senses combined. So seeing is believing. And to be, to be able to have a visual, a map that we can see is so, so helpful. It gets us out of our head and we can just pay attention to that. So if we just imagine a, a circle, and at the top of the circle would be situation, and at 2 o'clock would be anxiety, 5 o'clock would be story, 7 o'clock would be distraction, and 10 o'clock would be suppression. So a certain situation happens in our life, and I believe things will occur and recur until we actually deal with them. Yes, I've heard that many times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll and I've, I've experienced it many times as well. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. So, and, and we know it's all, it's like scar, t scar tissue that's been just, you know, stressed again. And so that a situation comes up, it's all so familiar, it might have a slightly different face, but it's, it, we know it. And how do we know it? Because we experience it emotionally. We have anxiety. And then we get to the place where we say story. And it will, either we say to ourselves, you know, oh, I've, it, I'm justifying it because I've always been that way and so forth and so forth. And by the way, I don't want to talk about this. So pass me another glass of wine. I'm going to go for a walk. And then we distract ourselves. And eventually then that becomes, we suppress that. It's deeper and deeper and deeper. And the cycle continues. So the first thing is we have to, dis we have to disrupt the story. And we, whatever that story may be, to say, well, is this the truth that we're, that we're telling ourselves? Right. How do we know it's the truth? Well, what if it weren't the truth? What if it's something completely different? How do we turn that around? And it's all in the power of questioning. Um, <clears throat> if in, I have a very good friend, uh, Jason Dorland. He was in the Men's Eight uh, rowing 
okay. uh, team of for, in the Olympics in 1988. And I'll say, and he wouldn't mind my saying that, worst performance of any men's aid in Canadian history. He, they got to the Olympics, for goodness sake. And he's told me this story many times, uh, where um, just before the race, I mean, they were poised to do well. The Canadians won gold in 84, and, now, and a couple of them were in the same boat in 1988. And there they are on the boat, and, and ready to go, and they're in the mindset to perform. And the German team says, no, I think we have to make a certain change here. And it, anyway, that's what they say, that threw them off their rhythm. And the long and short of it is they came in two boat lengths behind the second last boat. And the Globe and Mail took a shot of them 10 seconds after the race, doubled over, weeping. These guys went into hiding for two years. They felt such shame, although they had got to the Olympics. Can you imagine? And so Jason will tell this story himself. And he came back and uh, he decided he was going to put a hate on. These are his own words. I love this man. He's awesome. But it's about the story. The story. And he, he said, I'm going to put a hate on. And he joined the next team for the 1992. And in that state of mind, his body just seized up. He had such a flood of cortisol and adrenaline that his organs just He was just destroying destroying his own body. He was destroying his own body. And, And so he quit. And what do you know? That 92 team won gold. And so he's, he's carrying this around inside himself, carrying this around. That, that's a heavy story. That's a very, very heavy story. And the interesting thing is that I just talked about this with him recently. He's a dear soul, and he's got a great family and fabulous marriage. And he was just recounting that to me. And he said, he talked about all the good things that came out of that. I said, oh, Really? What were the good things? Well, Sounds he said, like for example, of, change of the story. <laughs> he said, "I would not have would have never met my wife had I not had that not happened. I wouldn't have learned the real secret of coaching, which is challenge your perception, change your perception, change your reality. I would have never. Anyway, he was going through this, and now when he's coaching young people, and they, and they're, I mean, because the Olympic team does practice in in Victoria on Elk Lake and Shawnigan Lake." And they don't do too well. The first thing he says is, how can this be the best thing that could have happened to you today? And it, now we start to break the pattern. And we, when we continue to ask ourselves that question again and again and again, Aristotle, we are, we repeatedly do, excellence is not an act by a habit. What do you know? We start to move in a different direction. So it's, it's, to, it's to ask ourselves, to disrupt the pattern and ask ourselves, Challenge the story. Challenge the story. Is that how do you know that this is true? And what if it weren't true? Yeah, I love the question. What would be? What would it be like if it wasn't? What? I don't, I don't, but it can't. What if it like if it could? And just keep asking, like possibility you, language versus closed language. Exactly. And again and Such again. A difference. And you keep drilling on that. And what do you know? It's amazing what happens just with that repetition and that persistence. And and how we, yeah. And, and our identity is not who, what we do. No, not at all. Our, it's, 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 it's the meaning that we find in how we be. Ooh, okay. The meaning we find in how we be. Yes, as opposed to the measure of the appearance of what we do. Mm. Which is so easy. To, so the, the, the second one is almost the easy, because it's a cop-out. Just, oh, that's what it is. Well, what if it was different? What if it wasn't? Mm, and, how we, and how we feel about it. That's an interesting... Uh, it, it, it feels like, 
feels like, sounds like, tastes like, smells like. It's a different way. It, it, it's a conscious choice to make that shift. And it is a choice. But I find it doesn't often, some people you meet that start with that filter, otherwise it feels like it's a learned skill. And you almost have to see, seek it out. I know in my journey, early 20s, I just started like, this way I'm dealing with the world, it's not getting me what I want. And I had to start mm -hmm. and... Buddhism, and then read, you know, Carlos Castaneda and the tales of Don Juan, and then I got into reading Dan Millman, The Peace of War. There's a different way to look at the world, but I don't know, I can't remember my journey of like, something just wasn't right. And the tools I would given were powerful, but they were no longer serving me in the way I wanted. And uh, and I, I find people go on that journey at a different time, but it's it, it seems like a learned skill versus an innate skill, or maybe it is innate, it gets trained out of us, and then we have to put it back in. I don't know. I'm kind of going through this cycle, you're hearing me thinking out loud here. <laughs> Well, yeah, and, and it's amazing, the people that show up, who are we attracting because of the, of the, the beliefs that, that we hold? Or, or, or who are we holding at bay? <laughs> well, well, exactly. <laughs> to play and, both sides of that. And, and I, think, I, think, I think that life doesn't happen to us, it happens for us. I really believe that. And that is such a paradigm shift for so many people. Yeah. You know, and I don't, not, to, not to sound negative, the, the victim, like, it happened to me. That's, there's a very different, like your second option there really spins it in a much more I'm, I'm the all-powerful versus I'm having this happen to me. That's yeah. a really interesting shift to get people to move that. Absolutely. And it's in the power of the question. The, the, the question is in itself. We talk about discovery. Well, that means that we just take off, take off the cover. It was always there. We're just taking off the cover. We could say in the time of Leonardo da Vinci there was string theory and quasars and pulsars and black holes and I mean, heaven knows what else. But no one asked the question. It was already there. The same thing within ourselves. To either to to of course we have to have the intention. We have to somehow have the belief somewhere in some crack inside our being that in some well, crack whatever some place inside of our being that we somehow have a feeling that there is that we can do something more worthy with our life. Right. And then if, the if intention, I think, is very powerful. The intention, the intention is extremely important. And then from that place, we will start to attract the people who we say that when the student is ready, ready, the master will appear. Of course, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Took the quote out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we set that up, and to, to recognize that everything that is happening, we are attracting everything, and that could also mean adversity i mean some really horrible things yes. because without those we wouldn't be tested we wouldn't really dig into our resolve and into our resilience and into the depth of our resourcefulness that is the most powerful tool we have how many people have you met or i car accident best thing that ever i had recently had a gentleman on uh, involved in a hit and run kind of environment years ago it's Tyler best thing that ever happened because it changed my value of life friend who just survived cancer another friend who just out of nowhere had a grand mal seizure got out of it life flashed in front of his eyes completely changed who he was and you'll look at you and say best thing that ever happened to me but those weren't positive events they became positive because of how they changed the filter yeah. from the outside like oh that was terrible they're like oh no 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 it was the best thing that ever happened right. but yet do we have to have to get to such a profound Punch in the punch in the face sometimes <laughs> to get there. Sometimes maybe we do. I don't know to break us out of the break us out of the rut. I, I think that any any behavioral pattern has got to be disrupted. Yes, the old pattern interrupt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It it, we, it it has to be disrupted. It can't be something gentle. No, it's got to be something that's really cathartic, that really shakes us up and and makes us pay attention at long last.
In your workshops, in your coaching environment, do you do you create that, or is it more something that's a personal? It's going to be a little bit different for each of us, or to anchor the room and get people in that position. Is that is that something that you work at? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this more in, in individual coaching than in, in a group situation. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. However, I mean, just to ask ourselves certain questions um, that that can be so telling. For example, when am I at my best? What will I never do? What one word best defines me? Now imagine just doing that. I, I did a workshop recently in, in Lake Tahoe, uh, not in the lake. <laughs> I was working with a real estate team that deals. No, not in the lake. Thank you. I was going to ask a clarifying question, so thank you. <laughs> Nevertheless, anyway, a, a fa absolutely fantastic team. And so oftentimes we get into these situations, into a workshop, and someone says, oh, yeah, this is kind of a bore, you know, we'll sit through, and it's going to be PowerPoint, oh, it's, it's all it's about just the numbers. Another, it's just another leadership workshop. Oh, God, yes. yes, what a drag. And so the first thing I said, let's go around the room, introduce yourself by name, what is your position, and in one word, what is your expectation from this, this forum? Oh, okay. And then let's just number off the room, one, two, one, two and take a, a minute each and, and tell your correspondent how you would like to be respected and remembered. That's a heavy question for people. Exactly. And then we go right around the room and say to each person, in one word, what did you hear from that person? So now we're getting, so people, because, then you, because there'll be one word that really stands out, oh God, what I heard, which is more what I felt, was courage. What I heard and felt was transparency. Amazing. And then let's just move into groups of four. So we're, we're building that confidence that they'll speak forth into the room. And we ask these, these, those three questions that I just said a moment ago, which is, yes, when am I at my best? What will I never do? What one word best defines me? And now within 20 minutes, we've already got a vulnerability established, an openness, candor, authenticity, transparency, safety. And now we can take it from there. And even to say right at the very beginning, um, if I do at a leadership course, the people are already speaking within the first, within the first minute. So I might start with a quotation. I would say, a leader without followers is a lone walker. Rather than talking about me, just something, a statement like that. Words of Winston Churchill, a leader without followers is a lone walker. So we would ask ourselves, why would we choose to follow anyone? And not out of submission or fear or professional obligation, but follow in the sense of rallying with them in their cause. Well, the key word you said was choice. Right? It's choice. Choose. Choice, exactly, choose. Yeah, exactly. Um, and to do so with willingly enthusiastically, faithfully. And so I just turned to, in, to, in the people in the room, I said, why would you? Why would you? And so they're already in it. I said, so within this forum, we're going to build on the resource of everyone in this room. Your wisdom, your knowledge, your experience, your insight, intuition. So that together we're going to co-create a process to deepen our leadership behavior. And then I, I would just give a couple of statements like Plato saying, you can't teach anyone anything they didn't already know, for that would be as to give sight to blind eyes. Or Michelangelo said, the image is in the stone, I just take away the excess. So now people are fully involved. 
fully involved. They're welcome to the process. And I think so oftentimes in an educational situation, education is such an interesting word too, from two Latin words, ex ducura, out of lead. So the educational process is just one by which a, a per, catalytically, a person is invited to actualize that which is inherent. So let's. What does that look like? As opposed to being prescriptive, say this yeah. is a box. Now fit into it. Do it this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No authorship in that. <laughs> People support what they create. So, and that just fascinates me more and more. I feel myself just come to life and come to light when I can be. And that's my strong suit. Take me out of my strong suit. And I would say there are times when I'm very introspective, um, extremely hard on myself. I challenge my own confidence. But when I'm in, in that, I show up. Living in your genius or all the different ways. It's, they it's, so, and I think that's with everybody. And yes. so oftentimes we only see people in their genius. We see Judy Garland, you know, and how phenomenal she was, but take her off the stage and she was a mess. Well, artists are such a, we see them in these amazing, and then we hear about these incredible traumas or suicides and we go, yeah. how? I don't understand. Robert Williams was so funny. Kirk Cobain was so talented. Pick, pick somebody. That, that dynamic is so interesting in our society and we glamorize one and we, and we tend to, to not even want to see the other. Maybe that's an oversimplification, but it's, we always want to see the glamorous bits. <laughs> Well, it's true, because in many ways they, they serve our expectation. Mm. Oh, nice. What a great statement. They serve our expectation. Yeah. They validate the story. They, yeah. Again, it's a story. Oh, I want to see this person in that way, and that, that fulfills something that I, I can take that, that actually shores up my own lack of self-belief or confidence when I experience that through their agency. I feel better about me. Yes, Whatever that looks like. Whatever that is. <clears throat> so I've had someone ask me this. Actually, it was, I think it was our mutual friend, Carrie Van Camp, many, many, many years ago. She called me up once. She said, Tyler, like, how do you create confidence in your team? How do you create individual confidence in, some, in someone else? And I don't remember what my answer was, but it was an interesting question. I think I've still, I've always pondered it. I think there's different situations and different. How would you answer a question like that? Well, confidence means with faith. With faith. So I think, hmm, I think we want give the team the opportunity to define a culture by their on a level playing field. Just ask them that question. What would it look like if we had absolute safety on this team? What would it look like? And what would be the behaviors and the actions that we would need to deliver consistently and holding ourselves first and then each other accountable, but holding ourselves first, that we would model that and we would remind ourselves of that because the ultimate goal would be to feel safe. And if we're, Because without safety, there's fear. And when there's fear, there's disillusionment, distrust, destruction. Oh, there's a lot of disses. <laughs> a lot of dis. It's useless. Well, back to we've all, the, Patrick, the base of the pyramid of trust. Like, mm-hmm. There's so many different, different yeah. ways that's been yeah. articulated. The, the hierarchy of needs. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so to build confidence, I think the first thing is we have to, we have to co-create a forum or, or, or a place of safety. And now people can feel vulnerable. And because without vulnerability, we can't have any confidence. And that's such a powerful comment of, of, of confidence isn't the one, it's the many. You said build, build that environment so everybody feels that way so mm-hmm. that the confidence can actually thrive and show up in lack of, lack of fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And, and in, so, in, in faith is an interesting way to, to, to break that apart. Just mean it sounds so different when it's confidence versus faith. It's a very different sounding word. With with well, it's come yeah from, from two Latin words, cum mm -hmm. fide, with faith, confidence, and it's a state of of in faithfulness, and how how wonderful. But it's that safety, that place of safety. Um, <clears throat> just a couple of days from now, when we're speaking, I'm going to be presenting to Imperial Oil, and it's how. Uh, the performance of a symphony orchestra can inform our best business practice. And one thing I'm, I'm going to say within that is that context defines behavior. And, uh, and we, when we, if we speak about engineering or, let's, or human behavior or human form, so context defines behavior. And the example that I give is of the East-West Divan Orchestra, uh, which was founded by Daniel Berenboim, a phenomenal musician, a visionary leader. And so, the, and I say that this orchestra is admired all over the world for their performance, their contagious enthusiasm. They just have all oh, this energy that comes out of this group is just compelling. But they're admired even more for their culture, because within that orchestra, young Palestinian and Israeli musicians sit shoulder to shoulder, side by side. Yes, working towards a common cause. And what's so neat, talking about confidence is that having experienced that context within which they experienced that safety of mutual care, of openness, of transparency, vulnerability, they've transported that into their personal lives. And yes, these are young idealists and they're spirited and they get into these, this really raw debate and creative conflict for that matter. Having, ex having learned and experienced that safety, they bring that now to their conversations. And it, it's so fascinating because in that, now they're, they're, they're exploring their own, their own story and they're, they're open to experience another person's point of view and, and build those bridges of trust. Absolutely fantastic. But it came from having had an experience viscerally experientially, that they could then import that into their personal life. A lot of people, or a lot of, a lot of businesses I understand, they'll go on a mountain expedition or something where they, they just, they, they don't talk to each other, they really rely on each other. They need each other absolutely, and everyone has got to pull his or her weight, otherwise lives could be lost. And so whatever that looks like, or a rowing team when you have to be right in the same rhythm and everybody pulling together, whatever that looks like. And then when they have that somatic learning, perhaps they can import that into their personal interaction and their business practice. Um, but in the absence of that, when, when the, the people are invited, invited to just declare themselves and, and be open and, and even to say, for example, I, I talked about starting this with this team, and you know, how would you like to be respected and remembered? When are you at your best? What will you never do? What one word best defines you? And then we talked about, and then just on, in groups of two, just you don't have to share with the whole room. Please talk about a time when you were about as low as you've ever been, when you just felt hopeless, when you were just in smothered in darkness. Everybody has been in that place. How did you feel? 
what did you do to tap into your resourcefulness to move through that space? And how has that informed your awareness, self-awareness, and the, somehow the, the compass of your life altogether? So they just do that. Now, they didn't declare it to the whole room. It's deeply personal. Mm-hmm. You, create a, you create a safe, safe yeah, environment. But, but yeah. there, now, now you've had the safety just with one other person. And we also, we'll say, we'll set a, if you want to call it a ground rule, that when the other person is, is speaking, we're not going to say anything. We're just there to listen, not to judge, not to assume, just let them speak. And with our body language, confirm them. That's all. A beautiful thing we can do too is if we build rapport with people, we breathe in their same rhythm. We, 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 I mean, uh, Milton Erickson, the phenomenal psychiatrist, he talked about matching and mirroring, and so we mm-hmm. might do that with our body language. In any event, we, we absolutely give ourselves fully to support their expression, their experience their, of their deepest, darkest moments, their revelation of that. And that in as much as they've been able to do it with one, somehow that goes to many within the team. It's a beautiful thing. It's so beautiful. We do able to get better at what we practice and going through the motions and it becomes easier. And any story you had about what fear, what may be at risk when, oh, well, I guess it worked out okay. It's it's amazing when you do like create those opportunities for positive experiences because you learn that there maybe is a different outcome than the story you told yourself. Yeah, the story. It, and it is just a story, exactly. And just, how should we say? I, said, I mean, we see that in an orchestra. I said, one thing that we could learn from an orchestra is that feedback between the players is immediate and without judgment. It, there's no room for judgment. This is what we're getting, so there it is. Yeah. So, gee, what can we learn from that? What does that feel like? Or consider a person who accepts you wholly. Who what might that be? And I think so oftentimes we're just wearing an armor. We're so afraid. I, I coach people for in public speaking. That it's generally acknowledged that fear of public speaking is only second to the fear of dying. I think that's a Jerry Seinfeld skit. If I'm not is, is that right? Well, I, I believe so. Well done. Yes, I've heard it many times. Well, well done, exactly. And why is it? Why are we so afraid? I think we're so afraid because we, we, we have a, a, a desperate need to be loved and, and a dread of being judged or criticized or abandoned or any of those things. It's so deep-rooted. It's, it's yeah. overpowering. And you don't even realize the full complexity. Because you, you make up a story of what you think it is that's holding you yeah. back from that. Yeah, exactly. And so, the, so there's this, it's a dependence. It's a, it's a dependence on approval and a dreaded, dreaded uh, uh, fear of disapproval. Well, approval addiction is a real thing. <laughs> Big one. Um, yes, and but like you said, it's amazing when you. My, my business partner says something very interesting. He goes, "We we wait to have trust to be vulnerable, but the second you're vulnerable, you create trust." And something he's been Always. saying recently, and it's just really resonating with me, is like, "Well, once I trust you, then I'll be vulnerable." But you want to fast track trust? Just be vulnerable, which means taking a little bit of risk, not being in fear. It's so interesting when you think about it from leadership culture, cultures of fear, and how they you know like, how does this happen? What? But it still comes back to a group of individuals. Right. And what's being, you know, fostered and what's being, what's being validated. <laughs> yeah. 
When you work with organ, do you work with organizations large and small? Sounds like lots of like mm -hmm. from individuals right up to. Uh, yeah, absolutely. How I guess how challenging for you know there might be people listening right now that wow I've got an, I've got a culture that maybe isn't conducive or I want to change it. Is, how hard is it to shift a culture? That's a pretty broad question. That's I realize. Pretty, yes. Um, but you see, I feel like you've seen all different shapes and sizes. That's true. From uh, from startups and not for profit, many like the Salvation Army and food banks and so forth, to large Imperial corporations. Oil. Yeah, I'm just Imperial listening. Oil, Telus, Enbridge, so forth. Yes, I think that there there has to be. Hmm, there has to be an intention, a shared intention of humility at the leadership level. Mm. Because I think that the leadership will be the one most threatened by this process. Ooh, that's powerful right there. Mm, yes. Because the, the, to, to fear that, to, to, have, to, to, to uh, somehow barricade oneself, to, that uh, yes, I'm impervious, I, you know, I can handle this and so forth. Um, so, but and once, once the if the leadership is sincere to that, and is willing to demonstrate that by example, I think then that's a very very powerful. And then the whole thing has got to be done on a level playing field. So we can't have just the manager tier and then and the, the senior. No, it's not a push down strategy. No, 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 not at all. If anything, it's a groundswell up in the organization. It's pervasive. It's contagious, and it's wonderful. And then, uh, I think the best thing is to to send out a confidential questionnaire to all the, the people involved. I've done, done that every time. And ask very pointed questions. Um, what is the core value of your team? It'd be very interesting to see that many teams don't know what the core value of their team is, whether it's been written or stated or whatever. Is it lived? If it's a value, it's exhibited. Yes, it's either, if it's not observable, it's not a value. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, Just because uh, it's written on the wall, that doesn't count. <laughs> exactly. What's the level of trust in your team, zero to ten, and why? Um, to what extent do you feel uh, open, engaged, and, 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 and appreciated on this team, and why? What behavior most contributes to the success, success of your team? Why? Which, what behavior is the most negative effect? Now we get into, uh, into the, what's the level of trust on your team? Why and how is it demonstrated or not? Now, now I the, find people have an e probably have an easier time asking the trust one than the core value one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because I trust you or I don't. I don't know. I feel that that's a little more pedestrian of a question. Yeah, it, true. And then, and then what does your team look like today? Paint a picture in words. What would your team look like? And actually draw it those are, if you those can. Are, those are powerful. Yes. What would your team look like at peak performance? Now we have a visual at the end. Of, what would it look like in an end state? And that visual is going to compel and invite an emotional state. So you set state. the aspirational tone of the better future. Yes. It's all aspirational. Exactly. Yes. And then just set ground rules at the beginning. And actually go around the room. How would you like to be respected? And remember, whatever. Just bring the yep. conversation down to its very very quiet and intimate, and then let the team, on a, it must be on a level playing field, define its own culture in a written living charter. And it's amazing. There's a, there's a team in Victoria, so I've done this many times in Victoria, and uh, it's the Victoria Foundation. And they did, this charter was co-created by that team in 2009. It's a long time ago. And they, they have an, each, each, each team chooses to have an icon. Theirs was a tall ship in a storm. That epitomized to them a great high-performance team and a team where trust was just 
integral to the whole culture. Life and death. Mm -hmm. Life and death, there it was. And there are all the signatures. Anyway, and so a person who was a a national director of uh, foundations came to to see this and saw this charter. It's it's huge. It's maybe two and a half by three feet and it stands conspicuously right in their lobby. He came in and he said to the executive director, my God, this is an inspiring document. It's really amazing. And the people have all signed it. And the executive director said this, Yes, this was done in 2009. Half of those people have gone on to other jobs, and we've doubled the size of our team. But we still hire for that culture and train for skill. So there's there's longevity to it. And the, 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 the charters, are they have so much in common, because it goes back again to that, what does it feel like? How can I be safe? How can I show up? Um, how can I? How can I just speak my piece and be be honored just for that? It, it, it's a phenomenal process, it, and it, it works. And so tangible. It is tangible. It sounds a bit like Nirvana to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Well, I, I remember working with a. I won't say specifically. We'll say a, a big corporation. And what was interesting was the these key phrases that were coined in these charters eventually stood at, at, at you know on, on the on a meeting room. So you're in this room, but you go, just before you go in, you see a statement. You think, oh gee, and seeing is believing. If we're continually reminded of something, you know, yes. we, we see repetition. Even, reach and frequency is important. Yeah, well, sure. We, we look at the hockey rink and all these things, you know these advertisements, Scotiabank and Tim's yes. and all these kind of whatever. Uh, Tim Hortons, and even we're not consciously taking it in, but we're seeing these things continually. And when we're emotionally charged, so it's really taking yes. hold. And our of minds us. are always scanning the environment for threats, opportunities, what's going yeah, on. Yeah, it's neat. A, we're still fairly primal if you go all the way. If you if you dig today, it's true. So curious, and this is a random question: living in a city, uh, oftentimes led by engineers, accountants, analytical, some would say left brain individuals. Do you find that this approach? Is it met with any resistance because it is a little bit more, it's emotional, it's, it's very human, so I'm not certainly diminishing in any way, but I'm, I'm curious, because even sometimes in marketing, you run into like, well, where the, where's the data? Where's the metrics? I want to see the numbers, or I, I will not believe it until I see the X. But yet some of it still is, well, how does it make you feel? I don't, I don't have time for that. Well, you're still human. You know, you have a pulse. I checked. We were good. So I'm curious how, how that, because you've dealt with all types of organizations mm-hmm. and probably leaders with a variety of backgrounds. Well, to start off with those questions that I used with the real estate company down in Lake Tahoe, and have done that kind of thing often, as soon as we establish that kind of environment, people might feel a little bit on edge. But the thing that's interesting, because they're, it's, they're just speaking to one person, they're not declaring themselves to the whole room. They're not losing face in front of a... It's vulnerability, it's vulnerability light. <laughs> it's, it's very light. <laughs> Which is good. And... and over time, it's amazing how people will just open. I think the other thing, too, because I've seen that many times. I was working with a team. It's a startup company, but it's a, it's a fast-growing company, very fast-growing. And in Vancouver, they'd only been in existence for six months, and they already I think they have already 88 people on this team. Nevertheless, there were 40. And uh, the first day that I was there, they were talking about, all about business and about their skills and so forth. And I said... Let's get to know each other as people. That's what we want a community. As humans. <laughs> as humans. And then let's think about what. We're... So to be is to do. 
I mean, that's let's that's from Lao Tzu, the, from the Tao Te Ching. So let's start with, who are we? Who are we? There's that wonderful quotation from um, In the Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Mm-hmm. And there's a dialogue between Kurt and Marlowe. And the statement is, you know, it's not the work itself. It's the opportunity to find yourself through the work. And I think so oftentimes we think the work is an entity. No, it's just a forum. It's it, within which one may evolve, self-discover, and all these kinds of things. So, um, to establish, and, and so the second day when I came on, first of all, I, I'm just, I never met these people before, and I just established that by saying, we're going to co-create this process, building on the resource of everyone in this room, and so forth, and they think, oh, he's not just going to stand up there with PowerPoint and talk at us. He's not going to PowerPoint us to death? Yes, we're, we're going to be involved in a conversation. So it's very much a workshop. Yes, it's a co-creative. It, yes, yes, co- it's, co-creation's it, better. It's, it's co-creation. It's a dialogue. And so now we go around the room. But somehow we set that tone of safety. And it's very open and very... And there were statements that came up. I mean, the, and it was within... Oh, my goodness. It was like I saw a totally different group of people. So the first day they had their social mask, and this is my business self, and this is what I do. My, my armor, like you said earlier. My armor. And this time around, we had, there were times when, when we had the, the room in tears, when someone would reveal something so intimate, so precious, so life-changing, so heart-wrenching. And you think, my God, this, is, this person is on this team. And, and, and I feel now safe to be able to say, you know, I've had some tough times too. And so we've really got each other's back. It was an amazing experience. Quite spectacular. I remember there was one woman, she was from Romania. And when I met her on the first day, she's she's their CFO or something in accounting. Anyway, she's really good in left brain and and all these kinds of things. And she said, she started to talk about her father and how she dearly loved him. But she said he was hardly ever home. He was usually in jail because he railed against the political practice of the country at that time. And for that, he suffered. He suffered deeply. And she was, and the way that she told the story, you know, I love that when people say, people will forget what you said. They'll never forget the way you made them feel. And we only feel what is already in us. It's just awakening something that's already there. And it's a catalyst. It's a reminder. It takes us home by the other person's courageous example and their vulnerability. And it was just amazing. And everything changed after she spoke. Because it activated that in everyone. Yeah, in everyone. So interesting. That, that, that concept. And it's, we're so scared to do it, but yet we, we hold it in such high regard when someone else does it. <laughs> Often. There's... There's a practice, apparently, it's all around the world now. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to say a bad word on the air here. That's okay. This uh, is, this is uh, I, I do always put a parental warning on all my, just, <laughs> just in case, just to cover my bases. Anyway, I, I went, it, this was started by some senior executive years ago, and apparently now there are 250 places around the world where this takes place. And it, probably it's here in Calgary too. And these are called fuck-up nights. I was going to, I knew, yes, I knew where you were going. I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah. Fabulous. Is it a bad word when it becomes a, a thing? Like when it's, I yeah. don't know. Yes, I'm, I'm familiar. I think, I, I, we, I think they've had two in Calgary now. It's relatively new in Calgary, but yes, I've heard about it. It's a it. fantastic thing. Yeah. Fantastic. 
And people just sit there and they're so inspired. You see someone who's, and th- that a person, and they talk about it courageously and appropriately when they just made a, a really bad decision. <laughs> and a really bad fuck up. <laughs> a really bad, exactly. And in so doing, as you say, the trust that comes from that when people will choose it's to talk so about it. It's so endearing. It endears us immediately to that individual. Because one, it humanizes them, it lets them, you know, sometimes we put people, especially successful people, we put capes on them and put them on, they never even has to be there. <laughs> Back to the, you know, falling in love with that individual in their genius in that moment in time. And, you, but then there's that other part of like, oh, okay, you're real, like, you know, even on this podcast, I've had people call me and say, hey, thanks for that episode. I listened to so-and-so who I thought was really successful, but when they told me about, when they talked about their hard time, when they talked about getting a coach, when they talked about needing help, I just called and got a coach because I was inspired. That permissibility is so powerful of what it can go. Oh, if it works for them, then I guess it's okay. That's such an interesting dynamic back to the stories we tell ourselves. <laughs> I get the theme here. Well, you know, just to, you're, you're inviting me actually to say this because when I think about my, my first story, actually I learned, I, I realized this quite recently. <clears throat> I was, <laughs> this is kind of an odd thing. I was with my two with my friends, and they have two dogs. And these dog, they're bringing a dog trainer, and the dog trainer said something that really hit me. He said, "You know, the dog's behavior or behavioral pattern is set between four weeks and four months." So you say, "Oh, I just got it when it was a pup. It was five months old. Their pattern's already set." Interesting. That's. I think that's very. I'd never so, I'd not heard that before. That is interesting. So I'm just wondering, also in humans, how quickly is our pattern set, and how much is the story? It could be a karmic story. It could be some, one believes in reincarnation, or it could be something brought from a former life. But how much of the story is innate, and how much of it is conditioned by our environment? So to give you that example in my own life. So I'm the oldest of three. Um, so my sister is three years younger. My brother's seven years younger, and we were, we grew up in Toronto. And our mother developed cancer and and died when I was eleven. My sister was eight. My brother was three. And uh, it's a couple of things that are really mem- well, really profound about that. Insofar as we never said got to say goodbye to her. It was a maybe it was just the convention of the time. That can be just a story, and um, you know you just don't talk about that. And I heard later from my father, my mother would say, "Look, I'm having all these treatments. I'm not going to live very long." Oh no, it's all going to be all right. No, she's going to die. There's no question. So when her death was announced to me, uh, my brother and I were staying with an aunt on her farm and so forth. And how that even came to me, that um, I saw this man, and he was, he was a clergyman. He came to the front door of this, my aunt's house, and then they went out and they started talking and so forth. And I thought, my story, oh, he's come here, because I knew my aunt, my aunt didn't go to church, uh, because he, he wants to meet the, the soloist in a, in a big church in, in Toronto. You know, that's my story. Anyway, I went out to him. And he asked me a number of questions. He said, you know, tell me, tell me about your father and your mother. And I said, my father was a salesman, and he comes up here on weekends. My mother's been in hospital. We're going to be going on this vacation, uh, family vacation, in a couple of weeks and rent a cottage. To which he said, uh, you have the name of a, of a man in the Bible. I'm sorry to tell you, your mother is dead. He said exactly that. 
and I just fell over. It was like you just cut a tree, and I just fell over. So what, what was the effect of that in my life? And, and it's very interesting. So what are, what are some of our early experiences? Yes. And what I discovered later, much later in life, was that I was never going to be cut off guard again. So I was going to shelter myself at all times, that I'd never be in that vulnerable place. And fortunately, this is, it's interesting how fate shows up. So I was, I was in Toronto, and I was rehearsing the Canadian Opera Company for a nine-week tour, staying with my... So my father had remarried, and I said I'd like to take him and, his, and my, our stepmother uh, out to supper, just to acknowledge their kindness for letting me stay with them. And I said, oh, by the way, I've heard that there's a movie called Terms of Endearment. I don't know what it's about, but let's go and see it. Caught me completely off guard. I just had a cathartic experience in the theater. So interesting. Yeah. But nevertheless, but how many of our, our audience will think of something like that? They were shaped when they were most vulnerable, perhaps by people that they trusted implicitly. Mm-hmm. And they were wounded so deeply. We hear about this. I have friends who are psychiatrists, and they say most of the stories, although these people, our clients are in their 40s and 50s and 60s, we're talking about something that happened before they were 10. So it's to root out that and, 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 and say, yes, maybe, how am I the beneficiary of that? Yes. And how did it shape me? And how did I reinforce my experience of that? And how did I develop a story either to justify or to deny that? And it's in everyone's life. I'm sure of it. Last week when I was giving this presentation to the Viatech people, I simply said, uh, started off by saying, adversity always offers opportunity. An opportunity for each and every one of us to dig into the depth of our resourcefulness, to face our fears, to test our resilience and our resolve. And somehow through that experience, to stretch and grow and be transformed to another state. And then just going on, I say that the people that we most admire and the companies we and brands that we most trust are those that have walked through the fire. Have done that, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. And how, what they've learned. And I said, <clears throat> and, and then I said, how many people can, can relate to this? Every hand went up. Every hand went up. There are 55 or 60 people. Every hand went up. You know, a time, a moment, it shaped you. It's, and, and, of course, going to Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching, what we resist persists. So in our story, if we choose not to hit, to address the story, disrupt the story, then we distract ourselves and then suppress. Back, and back to the, I've still got that image. I've still yeah, got so, the wheel. So, the, the wheel is there. Yeah, so, absolutely. So all of these things, just to think about that. Um, you know, there's that old Joni Mitchell song, which is, it's clouds, illusions, I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. We just we see the illusion, the, what, the assumption, the projection, the expectation that we hold that somehow... That's hmm, the story. It gives us, it gives us comfort, hmm. in a way. Oh, yeah, I can feel... Even although that person is suffering... Oh, well, I can feel comforted by that. And even by... Or the story that my interpretation comforts me. I, I was... Um, we're amazing hallucinators. <laughs> well, yeah. When I go on vacation, I like to read, read books that really test me. And so uh, the last vacation, uh, second to last vacation, 
I read a book by Yuval Harari, which was great, called uh, Homo Deus. I'd highly recommend that. It's, to uh, have you, all three in the series, all three are fantastic. All fantastic. I read yes, them all. Fantastically the, good. The greatest thought leader of our time. I, yes, I'm a, I'm a raving fan as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then also to read, in addition to that, the Bhagavad Gita hmm. and the Course in Miracles. So it's getting a different perspective of mm-hmm. things. And there was a statement in The Course in Miracles that I, I heard it and then I just went out and sat on the beach and thought about it for three or four hours. In cognitive therapy, we say perception is reality. And we accept that. But philosophically, reality is reality. I mean, whether we can conceive of it or not, it is. Having said that, in this book, and I, I mean, this is, this, that was what was most outstanding. In the introduction, it said, projection is perception. So in other words, something that is that has been born out of our own thought process, mm-hmm. our own has been integrated into our own belief system, and we take it from the past to project to the present and into the future. So always to, to test those assumptions. Is this the truth? Where is this coming from? To take the moment and test it. I think that there's there's always just take the pause. Take the versus running forward at mock speed in this distracted world of ours, believing the story at first blush. Yeah. Whether it's you're listening to sound bites on the radio or those sound bites in your own head, question. <laughs> Be curious. Well, yeah, and, and, and I think in being curious, first of all, to get into our body. Uh, Back to the gut. You made, it, you made a reference to that quite a bit at the beginning. Well, 90% of the head. information that we gather comes through the neuropathways. And I remember reading in Greg Braden's book, The Divine Matrix, who's a, f- a physicist, who's, or a scientist at least, who's now a heart scientist, now a metaphysician. And he would say that it's, it's proven empirically that the heart, he gives a number to it, that the heart is a hundred times more powerful than the brain electrically, mm-hmm. a thousand times more powerful than the brain magnetically. So when you get that heart intelligence, that gut feel, that instinct, and again, the, the neural pathways, what does it tell us? So to get into that, get in, breathe and get into our body and not flee into our head. Ah, that's interesting. Fleant. I had a friend who was a coach, and she did a lot of work with heart math and mm. for years, and talked about that and the strategies around it. And it's fun. You listen to you talk is bringing up a lot of things she talked to me about. I'd never heard the flee into our head. That's a mm. really interesting. If not staying with the feeling and jumping into overanalyzing or or fabricating a new story. So, flee, so breathing flee into our head, breathing and getting you know find your resting heartbeat. Breathe to that rhythm. Rhythmically. Back, back to rhythm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just internalize that. It's so amazing. Well, Peter, we're pushing up on the 90-minute mark. <laughs> and I feel we could go for another 90 without barely even taking a breather. Um, thank you so much for... I don't even know what to thank you for. I think of so many things rushing through my head right now. One, being very candid and honest with your story. And I think some of the insights today. You've given me... like my, I'm, I, I think I need to go take a pause and come back just so I can process some of the thoughts. For anyone who's interested in learning more or becoming involved or who's as inspired as I am with what you've shared... Is there a place where someone can connect with you? Do you do courses publicly? Are they always privately done? Like, how do we get more? I guess this is a simple question. Well, there there are public courses, uh, definitely, in and private courses in leadership, communication, and presentation skills, team building. Um, yes, it, my website is petermacoppin.com. Yeah, we'll put it. We'll drop a link onto as well. That's, sure. that's absolutely fantastic. It, interesting. We're we're talking about branding, and a, a friend of mine said to me recently, a lovely guy. He said, "You know, Peter, that." PeterMcCoppin.com, that's all about you. Who cares? <laughs> what, what is the effect? What is, I think to engage, when I look at <clears throat> Simon Sinek's Golden Circle, I think one circle is missing. 
everything does start with why. That's so. What what is the what is at the core of our being that really motivates us to move through the fire, that step through the hardest and most difficult times, and that why it m- must be fueled by growth and contribution. It must be serving something mm. much greater than ourselves. If it's self-serving, it'll be short-lived. It's got to be. Simon Sinek too talks about finite and infinite companies. Yes, you know those. That, what's the legacy? What's beyond us? Um, and so when we see those those three circles, the what and inside that how and inside that why, I think there's one beyond that, and that's what's the benefit? What's the benefit? And then the, what's the what to deliver the, that? The greater benefit. Yeah, exactly. So go, going back to to that uh, to that statement. Um, what was the question? Even <laughs> the question was more importantly: If I want to learn more, how do I? How do I? You just yes. So we're so, going to go to Peter McCoppin. Peter McCoppin. For this, now, for now, for now. The URL will change in the so, future. So, the, so here's I'm going to announce this on the air here because this is so interesting. So this friend of mine said, "Okay, here this is about them. Future bright, futurebrightlights.com, awakening the heart of leadership. That's exactly. But that's all about you. Yes. Not about me. I love awakening the heart of leadership. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Do you like yes. the first part? Future bright lights. I do and I don't. I think I'd have to process it a little bit. Like the second part, I really love. I think the first part, I get it, but it almost it doesn't. It does. It's not resonating with me. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure why. You're putting me my branding hat on on the spot here. Well, then I'll, we'll talk further. <laughs> I do. I do. I do. I do like it because I think it's correct. When listening on to you, you're talking, but something about waking in the heart of leadership, I feel oh, there's a layer there and that's missing in between those two. But okay, to be to be continued. <laughs> to be continued. I, I must ponder. You've given me much to think about today. You and and uh, may I say how grateful I am, deeply grateful. It's our first meeting, first in person. And you you talking about safety, you just by your very being provide for such a place of safety, of candor. There's a softness in your presence. Yes, you have a deep enthusiasm, which is contagious. There's at your core a, a compassion and empathy, which really invites people to show up. They feel very, I, I can speak for myself, and I assume that that's general, that people feel safe in your presence. Thank you very much. You warmed warmed my heart with that comment. Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Tyler. Hello, and thank you for listening to today's episode. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. I want to let you in on a little secret. I absolutely love doing these podcasts. The learning, the people, the curiosity, the insights, the, the wow factor of meeting people that I thought I knew and learning their deeper stories really proves the value of what happens when you take the time to be curious and actually care enough to ask. With that, I'm looking for your feedback. I'm looking for your input. I'm looking for what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show, where you'd like to see it headed in terms of guests, in terms of questions, a little bit deeper. Please feel free to share. We'd love to get your feedback. Visit us on iTunes, on Spotify. Give us your review. Give us your five stars if you feel so inclined. But more importantly, give us your feedback. Give us your input on what you want to hear on future shows, and we will absolutely incorporate it. Thank you again for listening, and have an awesome day.